Welcome back, everybody. I am Cass Piancy, and I am here as usual with my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? Hanging in there today. We've got a, a fun one for us, um, and something that I, you know, probably thinking about our demographics, actually, a lot of our audience is probably familiar with, but maybe some of them aren't, and that we're, we're going to be talking about WorldCom. Full disclosure, I wrote an article about this years ago and read, read a, a book by Cynthia Cooper called Extraordinary Circumstances to get a lot of the information I gleaned about WorldCom. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and just get started. Bennett, can you tell us a little bit about the, the history of WorldCom? WorldCom was quite simply a telecommunications company. It was started in 1983 by Bernie Ebers and then happened to grow significantly during the 80s and 90s, really leaning into a strategy of growth through acquisition throughout the 90s, including acquiring a whole bunch of telecom companies, and even at one point trying to acquire Sprint, which the Department of Justice stepped in on because they were worried about WorldCom becoming a telecommunications monopoly. They blew up along with the rest of the dot-com bubble, at least in part due to some pretty significant accounting fraud. Yeah, there's a few, and there's a few things I, I want to touch on here. So um, you mentioned acquisitions that I assume, yeah, I assume most of our listeners are familiar with this, but there's mergers and acquisitions are just a, a big part of finance, but they were a much bigger part of finance. And there was just this moment in time. And I was talking to a, a friend of ours at Eat Cook Cryptos. He was an investor in WorldCom and he was talking about how you were seeing share splits, acquisitions, mergers, share splits, more ac acquisitions, more mergers. Like he, he had never purchased WorldCom stock. He ended up with WorldCom stock because he owned some other company that got purchased by WorldCom. And this was a very, very common thing back then. I think it's, it's a little less common now. It still happens. But at the time... There's some huge cases re revolving around these monopolistic entities, uh, Microsoft being the one people re reference the most. Microsoft lost their antitrust court case. WorldCom also lost. They couldn't do their merger when it came to Sprint. But it was called, by then it was called MCI WorldCom. And it had existed for quite a while. It began in the South, Mississippi, and grew from there. It was this time of deregulation. So the 80s, everything was being deregulated. It, it didn't matter what industry it was. Ronald Reagan wanted the government to not really have a say. But reflecting on frauds like this, it's pretty easy to see how there there's always a negative side to complete deregulation and to people always suggest, right, the uh, efficient market theory. Yeah, before we move on from this point, it's important to think about why WorldCom was trying to expand via acquisition. And a lot of what that comes down to is that telecom is a very infrastructure-heavy industry. You have to be laying lines, buying spectrum, owning those assets that are important to offering these services. And so rather than trying to do that themselves, WorldCom thought they could effectively get it cheaper by buying out companies who already had access to those things. However, like as you mentioned in your article, this often led to WorldCom duplicating certain functions, which led to a lot of their operations growing in cost over time. 
But thanks to uh, shaky accounting, which was a very common theme, let's say. Especially for Arthur Anderson companies. Yeah, well, we have an accountant auditor friend, and they have told us horror stories about all of the big four. I, I don't ever hear good things about auditors and the way that they operate. And I also know just from my friends who got law degrees and other stuff, a lot of them end up at auditing firms just to work for a few years. And I see no other reason for that than to learn the secret tips and tricks that you can utilize as an auditor for other purposes. What I'm saying is the current environment in many ways feels very similar to me. So that stuff is happening. No one is even thinking about it, which I assume is kind of what the vibe was back then, unless it was something major like MCI WorldCom. It's the same now. But on top of that, I think you have the same kind of shady, weird auditing practices going on today as you did back then. I certainly agree with that. Uh, do you think you'd be able to describe the specific accounting fraud? Yeah, uh, it's... It's something called prepaid capacity. And like most accounting fraud, it really amounts to little else besides hiding losses in an account somewhere and calling them something else and pretending in the future it's all going to be profits. That's every accounting fraud you're going to hear about. So for Enron, um, I, I don't remember what they called it. Mark to market. Which is a fair accounting principle. It's just that they used it wrong. Yeah. And so in Enron's case, they were trying to basically say that, like, for a 10-year contract, they could mark the whole value of that right up front rather than waiting the 10 years. WorldCom was kind of trying to do the opposite and take these expensive capital projects they needed to do and try to amortize them over a longer period so that their profits looked better than they did. But in both cases, it was them either trying to minimize an apparent cost or maximize an apparent uh, revenue, benefit, profit. Non-existent, really. I mean, really and truly, like the 2002 quarter one profit of $130 million became a $395 million loss after they had to restate their earnings and account for these things appropriately. And so using these accounting tricks, they were able to turn a $400 million loss into more than a hundred and $30 million profit. And it doesn't end there. Like, it's not like this was strictly mergers and acquisitions and the executive team working with auditors to hide losses and overextend the idea of profits. It actually, in many ways, this, this reminds me of our current cryptocurrency realm. It involved analysts and journalists and objective third parties who were supposed to be examining WorldCom from this perspective that, that was outside the realm of a salesman, but still inside the realm of an insider, right? And they always said, buy, buy WorldCom stock. And for a decade plus, they were right. But these these were the equivalent of today's show fluencers. So the one shining example is a man named Jack Grubman. Can you talk a little bit about him? 
Yeah, so Jack Grubman, who was an employee first with Payne Weber and later with Salomon Brothers, started to basically, as you said, start to recommend a whole bunch of these companies, including WorldCom. And then besides that, he helped coordinate these various mergers and acquisitions between these different funds. The other problem with this is that while he was organizing all these, while he was acting as an advisor to these companies, he was also often invested in the companies that were involved in these mergers and acquisitions, meaning he had a very strong incentive to make sure that other people were investing in and buying these stocks. He had this very deep conflict of interest in his role as an analyst. Ultimately, Jack would be banned from any analyst position and would no longer hold the sway that he once did, though apparently he still works in the telecom industry. But he was fined $15 million. Additionally, the CEO of WorldCom ended up almost uh, just about dying in prison. He was released from prison briefly, and then he passed away. Uh, recently, his name was Bernie Ebers. And Scott Sullivan seems to have gotten off the lightest. That was the CFO. He went to jail. But he just got fined, you know, some made out just okay as as far as I as far as I can tell. And Cynthia Cooper, who was the one who blew the whistle on this, I have no idea. I would love to have <laughs> I would love to have Cynthia on. But I think this is a really good example of seeing something be successful without fully understanding why. Then when the downfall eventually happens, now WorldCom is hardly remembered. People lost billions of dollars. And it was genuine fraud. I see a similar pattern in cryptocurrency. And I think even some of the largest frauds in the space will just be forgotten. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking very recently of BitConnect, right? It took two years for the leader of that to finally be charged with something. And when I was tweeting about it yesterday or whenever that was, I had followers of mine who were newer to the cryptocurrency space who were like, what's BitConnect? By the time the SEC had actually moved in on it, the people, the retail investors active in these markets, no longer even knew what it was. And this was like a multi-billion dollar fraud. And this is why I loved reviewing WorldCom, is because there was stuff I learned that rings so true to what I see today. So for instance, people go, it's successful. It's market cap is high. Why would they commit fraud? Yeah, and I think whenever I hear that question, I'm reminded of the one Cynthia Cooper quote, which is, people don't wake up and say, I think I'll become a criminal today. Instead, it's often a slippery slope. What really ends up happening in a lot of these cases, and I got kind of the same impression from Enron too, is that one time you do it so that you can hit a target because this is such an important quarter. And then next quarter comes around and the target's even higher and you're further off because you were in a hole from last quarter. But if we do it just this one more time, we'll be able to catch up. And then it continues to snowball and snowball on these people until it's just overwhelming. This is uh, like one of my things where I reflect on like Ponzi. People talk about him as this, I don't even know if it's part genius, part just bold idiot. But when you first read about the idea which is international reply coupons, which were essentially like prepaid postage to send back a letter. And what Ponzi noticed was there was this genuine arbitrage opportunity. It was a real arbitrage opportunity. It, he didn't make it up. But the problem was 
that when you thought of shipping and you came up with how many boatloads it would take to ship all of these international reply coupons to America, not only did the arbitrage like kind of evaporate, but also like you could never make it happen. But it was an actual thing. And people just forget it. It's like it was, oh, it was valueless. No, 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 no. Like it was a value. There was value here, just like WorldCom, just like Enron. They were valuable in some sense. And then they just were completely overvalued. I often wonder if certain Bitcoin Ponzi schemes started the same way. Overconfident traders who saw legitimate arbitrage opportunities took loans to be able to exploit them, and then the scheme just continued to grow and grow, realizing that once they'd played the arbitrage that it had closed and no longer existed because they generally don't persist forever, but not wanting to end the scheme because at the moment it seems so successful, they just continue to double down. Um, I often wonder if that's like what happened with Trend and Shavers with the Pivot at 40 Ponzi. Maybe people don't reflect on how easy it is to get in a situation where you are doubling down for really just no good reason. I've played hands of poker with friends where I have nothing. And for whatever stupid fucking reason, I just go like raise and they, they have the nut. But then I've already gone in too far. Can't look like a fool now. Even though at the end of all this, when I lose all my chips, I'm going to look like way more of a fool. I think there is truth to a lot of that. But also... There's people within Enron and within WorldCom, cutthroat profit maximalists, people who don't care where that dollar comes from that they're making. They're going to make that dollar. Very Jeff Skilling-esque in that regard. It's always the CFO, isn't it? <clears throat> and, and I think you're getting at something really important with that poker analogy there. Is like once you've overcommitted to a hand, your choices are effectively lose more than you're really comfortable losing by folding and then try to recover from there or hope that you can bluff your way to victory. And as long as you're getting that confirmation, again, a poker analogy is easy. Like if you look at your opponent and you even see any non-conviction, you can just convince yourself that like, oh, this is going to work out. And it doesn't work out that way. And it didn't work out that way for WorldCom. And the reason it became undone was because an internal accountant, Cynthia Cooper, discovered that other accountants, that other auditors had been doing essentially what we were describing, this, this prepaid capacity. And she called them out on their bullshit. And this is where we walk into another issue that I see happening today, which is how do you get whistleblowers to whistleblow despite the dangers, the risks, and what amounts to a blacklist once you've decided to do it? I really struggle with that question. And like Cynthia Cooper is obviously one of the primary internal accountants who did this, but she wasn't even the only one. Kim, I'm going to screw up this last name. Kim Ami was working on accounting for a capital project for WorldCom and was told in their opinion to commit tax fraud. And so their response was to try to escalate it up their chain of superiors to try to get an answer about it. And a couple months later, they were laid off from the firm. So it can be difficult to raise these issues internally, raising them externally risks, losing your livelihood, losing your ability to continue working in that industry. And even just 
say, leaving the company and deciding to go somewhere else doesn't fix the problem because then the company attracts more and more of the people who are willing to just go along and perpetuate the fraud. And so it's a really challenging situation. The only thing that is clear to me is that people need to realize the value these whistleblowers are truly bringing. And the fact that without them, many of these frauds would have gotten even bigger and ended up hurting even more people. And so that supporting these people who can, who can help prevent others from getting hurt is what we need to do. And, and we've heard some, some counters to this, right? Some people will argue that if you're going to whistleblow, well, you should just be doing it out of the goodness of your heart. And I tend to disagree with that because I think some of the most important frauds ever exposed were only because of whistleblowers who in return maybe get speaking engagements. Like they aren't really heralded as the heroes they are. And we should also mention that the SEC does have a program for whistleblowers where they can potentially get a percentage of stuff recovered from these firms. But often, by the time the SEC moves, the firm is already in bankruptcy and the whistleblowers end up getting little. Little or absolutely nothing. And I'm sure there's people out there who would go like, this is like a Stasi you know, intervention. Like you, you're asking people to report on the people they work for, but it, it's not about that. I mean, if you see something like auditing fraud, it just isn't the same, right? Like we're not talking, you're talking about the greater good. This is the greater good. Well, yeah. And generally the laws we're discussing here are not the type of laws that the Stasi was called in to enforce. Like you're saying, it's people lying in their accounting and things like that. And so I think the analogy fails somewhat in that regard as well. But again, we've heard counters to this suggesting something like, um, if something starts out as fraud, but then it's bootstrapped, it's no longer a fraud. My issue is that when does it stop being fraud? When, it, when is that magical not fraud moment? Is that just whenever it has enough bootstrapped value? It's kind of insane. Yeah, we're getting into a bit of an epistemics argument here about when you can know something is a thing. Uh, but, I mean, I think that if a company were to say, by their own volition, go to the SEC, admit that they had discovered this wrongdoing by some of their employees, immediately restate their earnings and like cooperate fully, that seems to be a company that's acknowledging and addressing their past misconduct. If the company instead tries to minimize, hide, or ignore the past misconduct, I think you're much more in the realm of continuing fraud. I know this might seem slightly off topic from what you're suggesting there, but we're talking about Bernie Ebers. So Bernie Ebers is one of the few executives that went to jail. A lot of misdeeds were occurring by a lot of companies doing a lot of bad stuff. But one of the people who got prosecuted was Martha Stewart. And you look at, you reflect on this, this woman with a billion dollar company went to jail for insider trading for $50,000. She spent five months in prison and five months under house arrest for $50,000 in insider trading. I'm not excusing $50,000 of insider trading, but what I'm suggesting is that there's people who did far, far, far worse and faced far, far, far less. I 100% agree. 
and Martha Stewart, if you're somehow listening to this, you have a standing invitation to come on the show. And I think one of the people we even talked about in this story is an example of someone who did much worse and got away comparatively unscathed in Grubman, right? He was this deeply conflicted advisor and analyst. He's aiding in all of these mergers and acquisitions where he has this insider knowledge and is an investor. And he's trying to pitch these to other investors to come in. And sure, he ends up paying a fine, but it he has, what, a $100 million net worth and pays a $15 million fine, doesn't go to prison, and then ends up forming his own consulting firm in the exact same industry where he could no longer be an analyst. Congratulations, you changed your job title and your duties 5%. So now the SEC can't touch you and you are still able to be the managing partner of this firm. It really does kind of feel like you're right. Often these regulators in law enforcement don't see the job through in terms of addressing this type of fraud. And and this is something that the best argument against our positions is that people are like, dude, 99% of people who conduct themselves inappropriately get away with it just fine, and they make money doing it. And I don't have an argument against that. I'm not here to argue against that. Like, I don't think that's okay. I don't think any of the guys at WorldCom should have gotten away with what they did. I don't think any of the people at Enron who were responsible for, for what happened, I mean, Fucking Lupi drives me fucking crazy. I mean, the dude walked away with more money than almost anyone at Enron, and he didn't face a damn day in prison. Like, no. If you're going to tell me, well, he got away with it, I'm going for it. What am I going to say? I can't, I can't argue. I can't argue with that. You don't make money reviewing things and analyzing endlessly. You don't. You don't make fistfuls of cash. It's just, it's true. I'm not arguing that. There's ethical and moral guidelines that different people follow. Exactly. It's people who are willing to break the rules so long as they get their profit and preferably their name and lights. That's going to do it. Another episode down the drain. I don't, that's the wrong term. Join us next week when we discuss crypto lending. <laughs>